Hey listeners, welcome to a very special 38th episode of The Goods, a film podcast. We have a special guest joining us tonight from the land of the rising sun. That's right. In addition to your usual hosts, me and Brian, we have my younger brother, Will. And he has been living in Japan for almost four years now, if I'm not mistaken. Is that the right number? Yeah, I came in uh, August of 2017, and it is now June of 2021. So, uh, yeah, just going on four years. So you grew up in the suburbs of D.C., as did Brian and myself. Obviously, you grew up in the same house that I did. But what brought you to Japan? Well, um, there are several reasons. Um, first of all, Brian may know this as well, um, at William & Mary, which was the uh, college I went to, there was a requirement to do two years of a foreign language and my roommate and I were both interested in Japanese, and because of that, I ended up taking the Japanese uh, courses at my school. And for my fourth and final semester of uh, required language studies, I ended up studying abroad in a place called Akita Prefecture in Japan. And while I was there, I enjoyed living there enough, and I ran into a few people who uh, have the job of being a high school teacher, sort of in a, the specific term is assistant language teacher, which is basically a uh, English teacher that helps out in uh, high schools and middle schools and so on. So when I came back, I applied for that job, ended up getting it, and right after I graduated college, flew over to Japan to teach English at a few all-boys high schools over here. Very cool. And I've listened to a few episodes of our podcast. You expressed an interest in doing one with us. I know that you like to talk and have your opinion known to the world and talk over other people. So I thought it would be a good fit because, you know, we could use some conflict and some uh, tension on our, our cast. I will say I have been known to express my opinion, sometimes aggressively and sometimes when others uh, wish I would, uh, you know, stop talking. However, in this case, if you're listening to a podcast, you really don't have the option to tell me to <laughs> shut up. So... Here we are. Will and I went to the same college. We're technically fraternity brothers. Technically, yes. We uh, were both members of Phi Mu Alpha Symphonia. Yes, and I believe one of the few times that we actually crossed paths at William & Mary was I came to a fraternity party as a creepy loser alumni and just was really drunk. And so I don't know if you have positive or negative memories of that night or maybe no memories at all. Certainly I was, if you were very drunk, I was also very drunk at the time. Um, I will say, uh, Brian is perhaps most famous in the PMA or Phi Mu Alpha Symphonia for his legendary Chipotle Mile, which was a time where I believe it was every quarter of a mile you had to eat a Chipotle burrito, and Brian was one of few members who actually was managed to complete the entire thing. That's right, I finished first, so I'm glad that the legend... Lived on for at least a few years. <laughs> I will say there was some controversy, I remember, because you were um, called out for, rather than running in between the burritos, you power walked, which was uh, deemed to be a sort of dirty strategy, if I recall correctly. Huh. Well, I hadn't heard that. I got to the finish line first, <laughs> but 
by a considerable margin. So I don't know <laughs> that there's much there's... controversy there. I mean, I feel like if you're in the Olympics and it's the 100 meter dash, there's not a rule against power walking the 100 meter dash. It's just like that's usually not the best strategy if you're trying to go as fast as you can. I would say the same applies for a Chipotle mile, too. I, I will say a Chipotle mile is firmly something that lies in my youth. I would never be able to even consider doing something like that these days. Yeah, it would be difficult for me to come out of retirement. To bring us back on track here, discussing the film. This is a film podcast. Not necessarily a nostalgia podcast, although we do indulge. But I asked Will to pick a movie, and he came up with a movie that he described as weird, that he wrote a paper about in college, called Tokyo Drifter, a 1966 Japanese film directed by Saijun Suzuki. Seijun Suzuki. Seijun? Yes, Seijun. If you're going to call it every single one of my mispronunciations, this is going to be a long podcast. I, I, I won't. This, this one is kind of... So this is kind of important, I guess. Seijun okay, Suzuki. Okay, let's hear it. Seijun Suzuki. Yeah. Any, tell us about Seijun Suzuki. So Seijun Suzuki was a uh, B-movie director at the Nikatsu Film Company in Japan in the 50s and 60s. And he was... Um, he made something like 40 films over 10 years. And as he made more and more films, he became sort of uh, tired of the standards of the Yakuza film genre, which dominated the box office in Japan in the 50s and 60s. And he started to develop his own style. And um, as his style sort of contrasted with traditional narrative structure and traditional Yakuza filmmaking, uh, the Nikatsu Film Company began to dislike or sort of... um, became fed up with his uh, stylings and asked him to rein it in. Uh, They started to limit his budget, and rather than follow their instructions and sort of rein in his style, as a response to the limited budget, he started to make more and more absurd movies. Uh, Tokyo Drifter was perhaps the last one that had any sense of coherency. Uh, And then following Tokyo Drifter, he made a movie called Branded to Kill, which I will talk about later, which is a little bit too absurd, I would say. It's very difficult to follow, very strange film, and following the release of Branded to Kill, he was fired for, quote, incomprehensibility. <laughs> so yes, he was a sort of a oddball director who made Yakuza films that were extremely stylish, bordering on avant-garde and postmodern. I seem to recall the last Japanese film we took a look at had some of the same controversy regarding comprehensibility but in that case i believe the director obayashi was hired because the studio said that their films were making too much sense and they needed somebody to shake things up (laughs) that was when we covered how sue back in october interesting a sort of inversion of uh that situation we have here then actually if i'm not mistaken this is the third japanese movie we watched because we also watched the original Godzilla. Oh, that's right. And it's weird. I actually think there's a lot of parallels between all three movies and some of their considerations. Or at least, I would say, Tokyo Drifter has overlaps with both of those movies in different ways. Have you seen the original Godzilla, Will? I have, although it was perhaps before I started to closely 
uh, examine Japanese culture and Japanese cinema, probably in either middle school or high school, I recall watching it. But I, I loved both of those movies. I gave Godzilla an exceptionally good, a seven out of eight score. Mm-hmm. And I gave House an eight out of eight score, one of only three or four movies that I've given that to in our 50-some movie filmography that we've reviewed across 36 epi- 37 episodes prior to this. So one of my favorites, for sure. Um, Interesting. Uh, seems like you have, uh, so far, a the Japanese films have a high hit rate for you. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see if that continues today. One reason that Tokyo Drifter is noteworthy to a modern cinephile is that the film was very influential just based on some cursory reading that I've done across modern genre directors, particularly those that kind of indulged in the more stylish, pulpy stuff. Tarantino's a big one, and I think he lifted whole segments for the Kill Bill series, which is his heavy-duty Japanese-influenced saga. I've only seen part of the first one. I haven't seen both of them, but um, I definitely saw some some parallels there, and I know that's famous lift for him. And, and I think it's been influential for other directors too, and some of it might or might not be direct influence, but I saw a lot of David Lynch in here too. Just the kind of fractured reality, bright, expressive weirdness, and um, kind of intensity of emotion that wasn't necessarily in the realm of realism. So definitely an interesting one to take a look at. And again, this came out in 1966. I've actually been reading a lot about the late 60s because I'm reading this book that I've mentioned at least twice on the podcast now that's amazingly good. It's called Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris. And it chronicles the production and release of the five Best Picture nominees at the 1967 Oscar Awards. And I learned a lot from that that I could put some context into here for Tokyo Drifter. So one thing, for example, is in the U.S., by far the the two defining forces in around 65, 66 in terms of American commercial power were one huge, bright, colorful musicals, which I actually do think is a little bit of a stylistic influence on this film, because this film has music as a as a kind of key motif a couple times. It's got bright occasionally very open uh mise-en-scene it's it's just very uh i don't know it had some of the energy of a musical now and then and very kinetic in the way you expect dance numbers in a musical but the other the other big one is james bond and this is james bond all over it i would say the kind of uh tough badass who rejects increasingly society and the things that would have him settle down and kind of going rogue and yeah, I, I heard a brief description of the film, a one sentence. This is Japanese James Bond in a baby blue suit. Yeah. I might bring in some of the other things I've learned from that podcast, or excuse me, from that book as as we go here. But I'm ready to dive into the film. Brian, any, any additional thoughts on this movie or, or anything? Oh, well, well, we'll talk about it as we dive through. But I really enjoyed the set design in this film and elements of the production design and what it made me think of another 1966 property was the batman tv series it's got that same mix of camp and cool 
and everything is super bright colors and there are these like larger than life sets that I would have just loved to walk around in. Yeah. I imagine the caricature nature of the characters uh, probably plays into that as well, where they are more personality than depth. For sure. Before we go in, Dan mentioned Tarantino. I have a casual admission that I have never seen a Tarantino movie, which seems a lapse in uh, my film knowledge, but yeah. Here are the goods. We don't expect everyone to be a film expert. In fact, part of the reason we did this podcast is we want to improve our own knowledge of film and learn about areas and directors and scenes and everything that we might not have otherwise encountered. So for that element, you're not going to get any judgment from me. I think Brian's seen a little bit more Tarantino than I have. I've seen uh, a few and bits and pieces of some of the ones I haven't seen all the way through. But Brian, I know he's at least a couple of his are favorites of yours, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, well, I really, really like Inglorious Bastards. I've seen a few of his others um, that didn't grab me quite as much. I did like Pulp Fiction, but I liked Forrest Gump more, so. (laughs) (laughs) I don't begrudge it its best picture win at the Oscars, unlike pretty much every other cinephile I've spoken to. But, yeah, we all have our gaps. I've never seen Casablanca, so. This is an opportunity for us to check some boxes we have not seen before. We can expand our repertoire. All right, so Tokyo Drifter, 1966, by Saijun Suzuki. This film follows a character named Tetsu, occasionally referred to as the Phoenix. He's the main character here. He is the the titular Tokyo Drifter. He is a henchman in a Yakuza gang, led by someone named Kurata, who's this older gentleman. And the movie starts with them talking about going straight. So they're going to get out of the the mob game. Tetsu is going to follow Karata. I guess I was a little unclear just how high level we were supposed to think Tetsu is because he seems like he's just kind of your run-of-the-mill henchman, but he also has like a very familial relationship with Karata at the beginning. So I I don't know exactly where it is, but... I believe he's he's kind of the enforcer top dog. That's the feeling I got. Sort of right-hand man. Yeah, I, I think he was Karada's best hitman. It's like, if Karada needs somebody whacked, he's going to send out Tetsu. Gotcha. So, as they're trying to kind of get out of the game, and Tetsu's really loyal to Karada, that, that's kind of an important theme here, is uh, Tetsu has this immense loyalty to Karada that, that drives a whole bunch of his actions, which I think has a lot of interesting thematic implications that, that we can get to in a bit. But Tetsu, yeah, so as Karada and Tetsu are striving to get out of the, the game, some of the other gang leaders have anxiety about this. Some of it's kind of undefined anxiety. I think intentionally allow you to read why they would be so upset that they're getting out of the game. But part of it is also that they, they want to get the turf that Karada had. So they, they, they want to figure out who's going to fill this power void here. And part of it is the property, but repeatedly it comes up that the gangs particularly this opposing gang led by this gentleman named oh i think it's atsuka i was reading this all in subtitles and not really comprehending the audio so i don't know exactly what the pronunciations are but atsuka yeah he's kind of the big bad here he's got this red jacket most of the time 
and sunglasses, and he's occasionally shot, like, almost stereotypically the kind of the guy who's, you know, conniving. He's shot in the shadows. You, you only see him from the neck down, etc. And he really wants to get Tetsu to join his gang since he's he's a hotshot henchman, hitman type guy, and Karada's going straight. We don't want Tetsu to go out. We want him to start working for us. So those are kind of the driving motivations at the start of the film. But I'm going to just pause for a second here because we're talking about the plot. And one thing that I think is important to note, two things that are important to note before we talk too much about the plot. One is that the most interesting things about this movie are not the plot at all. So this recap is going to go over large bits of exposition and backs and forths and betrayals and this and that, in part because that's not what we're really here to talk about when it comes to this movie, but also in part because I found this movie, this plot, to be fairly difficult to follow. I actually watched it twice to make sure I could process what I could and had kind of a plot crib sheet the second time through to try and follow it. I found this maybe the most difficult to follow movie that we've watched on this just because it's very jarring in the way that it hops to here's another clean shaven gangster who might be a hitman or who might have gone straight and oh now we have we're all of a sudden in some other location not clear how close it is to where we were or how much time has passed because he doesn't mess around with establishing shots his sense of temporal continuity is very loose and this movie is not, again, not really about the story. Yeah, another thing is, even for me, I have obviously more familiarity with Japanese names and like Japanese people than certainly Dan does and probably Brian as well. Uh, the names kind of fade into the background and you only really remember two or three, which is perhaps Otsuka, Tetsu, Kurata, and maybe Tatsu as well. In fact, there are some characters who I've watched the film maybe four or five times since Two times in preparation for this, and then obviously I wrote a paper on it in college, so um, several times then as well, and still there are some characters who I have no idea what they are named, and uh, I've made a note in my notes that the piano player actually has a name. I, f I thought he didn't have a name, but he does, and I believe it's <laughs> Binko. Okay. I'm glad you name-dropped Tatsu just now, because yes, this movie has a Tetsu and a Tatsu, and they're both pretty prominent because as Tetsu is trying to get out of the game, one of the other criminal organizations sends an assassin after him that he encounters frequently. And this assassin is Tatsu. Yes, Tetsu the Phoenix and Tatsu the Viper. <laughs> I guess Tetsu is short for Tetsuya and Tatsu is short for Tatsuzo. But they never call them the, the full name. It's, it's always Tetsu and Tatsu. Yeah, there's a few people who called Tetsu Tetsuya, specifically, uh, what's her name, Chihiro, the love interest, which is not so much a love interest as much of a discarded woman for the entirety of the film. Yeah, she's like a bargaining chip. Yeah, it's, uh, I will say, one thing you cannot praise this movie for is the uh, depth of female characters. But yeah, to pick up with the story here, they're fighting over turf. One of the things is, of course, Tetsu, and you're right that the majority of the effort to get him is to send this other assassin, the Viper. And he just, it's, it's almost like, it definitely is an element of comedy because Tatsu just fails again and again to get Tetsu. Tetsu, again, is the James Bond. He always finds a way to get out. But 
one thing I enjoyed is that Tatsu gets increasingly more like physically maimed as he goes. At one point, he loses his fingers. At one point, he gets like a burn on his face, and just this sort of existential obsession with with capturing or killing Tetsu just grows and grows on the Viper, the Tatsu uh, assassin from the other gang character. So, I thought that was that was kind of funny, but. The other kind of turf that they're fighting over is this dance club. I guess this is like going to be the main source of Karata's revenue when he goes straight is this dance club. And I absolutely love this dance club. It's shot in this purple light and there's just always people dancing on the perimeter. Like they'll kind of walk through the actual dance club area or the camera will pan on through it for a second. And there's always these people dancing. It's, it's sort of like this surreal modernist pulsating energy that is just kind of always there and and i thought that was fun there there's lots of like betrayals and shifting of debts from this to that and essentially karata gets blackmailed and basically being under the thumb of i guess it was atsuka the the big bad red jacket wearing guy who's from the opposite gang basically karata loses his leverage to retire and now with a hit out on tetsu and Karata kind of not having an ability to protect him. Karata sends Tetsu out to go be Tokyo Drifter to uh, kind of escape all of this Yakuza violence. Then he spends basically the rest of the film floating from place to place, encountering different personalities, most of whom are tangentially related to his former gangster life. So he meets a detective at one point who's going to like help him, I don't know, it's not a clear exact... I can't remember exactly what the goal was, but, like... I believe the detective... So, before he leaves Tokyo, there are two murders. One of a guy named Yoshi, who's a loan, a loan shark or some kind of financial broker. Um, and the other is of Yoshi's assistant. And I believe they pin the murder on Tetsu before he leaves to stop having Kurata, like, to not implicate him in the murder. So, I think the detective was chasing him to get him for that murder, but as you said, it is extremely unclear. And uh, the scene where the de detective chases him down is very funny. Uh, at least, I, I found it very humorous. The guy just running after him in the snow. It, the whole, there's, I, I will get into the comedy of the film later, but uh, there are many things that you kind of wonder whether this is supposed to be funny or not. And I choose to take almost all of them as intentionally humorous. Yeah, I got a little bit of like that that song, the Spanish Flea, da -da 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 -da, as the characters were chasing after each other. Like it was not always clear who was chasing why, and they would be like collapsing, shooting each other. It reminded me of that that classic Simpsons clip where he said Homer says, "This is incredible. I have absolutely no idea what is going on." Yeah, uh, I will say it's. There's a lot to talk about with the action, and the more you focus on what is actually happening, the more confusing it becomes, and I think the less you perhaps get out of it. Uh... <laughs> well, Tetsu really embraces this role as a Tokyo drifter, and he calls himself that multiple times, so he's definitely saying the title of the film. Yeah, I will say they are not shy about bringing up the title of the film. I would say Many filmmakers perhaps would be... Uh... A little bit, you don't want to sort of call attention to it because it can feel cheesy or campy to keep 
can you imagine if the Lord of the Rings, every five minutes, they were like, ah, we have to get <laughs> to Mount Doom so we can face Sauron, the Lord of the Rings, like, over and over again? <laughs> um, it kind of becomes very on-the-nose and cheesy. Uh, but in this film, they, it's like, oh, yeah, he's a Tokyo Drifter. Being a Drifter is like this. This is the Tokyo Drifter life. It's not shy about it at all. Right, and he even starts singing it a few times. Oh yeah, I want to talk more about that in a minute for sure. The the singing, because that I think is a enduring image from this film. Yeah, but in his time as a Tokyo drifter, he's encountering a bunch of different people, friends and foes, and a lot of this kind of blurs together because, as I think Dan mentioned, the timing is kind of unclear. And there's not a lot of establishing shots. It's just kind of like in one scene, he's talking to this guy you haven't seen before. And you might get a little bit of exposition about who this is. Uh, especially in the streaming age, when we might be doing other things while we're watching the movie. It's hard to keep track of who everybody is. Right. And it, it it's not just the establishing shot. It'll like not show the outcome of a specific action until like three scenes later. It's like in a normal filmmaking tempo, you would say, oh man, here's a guy with a gun. Is he going to shoot me? Bam. Oh no, he shot me. Oh, I have this wound. It's bleeding. Oh no, am I going to survive? And out of those five things that I just described, Tokyo Drifter would often show like two or three of them. And it wouldn't be until three scenes later where you'd be like, oh, I guess he did actually get shot and he's bleeding, but he didn't die. So, okay, I guess we'll keep going. And, and just a lot of stuff like that, which adds to, to the confusion. It's also got the, the hard-boiled detective thing of nobody is a good guy and everybody is betraying each other. And they're constantly, you, as soon as you learn someone is loyal to someone, a scene later, it turns out they're not loyal to that person. And they've been having a fake identity or some backstory you didn't know, which, again, I think... To Will's point, the fun of these types of stories is not pinning down the exact logic and through line of those things, but going for the ride and enjoying the the scenery as you go with the ride, I guess. I will say, I think I kept up with this one a little better, actually, than DOA, the hard-boiled film noir we discussed a few months ago. That was not true for me. This one puzzled me more than than DOA, but I, it's it's on the same ballpark, I'd say. So a couple other people he meets while he's he's this Tokyo drifter. He meets an ex-henchman who's got kind of this green jacket. The characters are kind of color-coded, which is helpful, and considering they're all clean-cut, good-looking Asian men, by and large, that helped me a little bit, how they all had distinct outfits or distinct looks. Yeah. Tetsuya does have big, bushy, dark eyebrows. So that sets him apart a little bit from right. and, the masses. And not to, to leap into the next film, Branded to Kill, but the main character there has like these weird, puffy cheeks. Yeah, they're artificially in, in they are artificially enlarged. I, I did not I don't know if you know that, but he had plastic surgery to make his cheeks bones larger. Joe Shishido, I think is his name. It looked like that. I didn't want to assume it was that. That doesn't surprise me. But that yeah. made it always easy to tell who the main character was because that also has 
some of the same hopping between different characters. The, there is but, an interesting line in the Wikipedia article that describing that they say he is uh, his look has been described both as ruggedly handsome and like a chipmunk, which I found to be a very funny line. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And then the kind of the last encounter he has is with a buddy of his boss who owns a saloon. I'm going to put a pin in the saloon because I want to talk a lot about the saloon here today. But I think the takeaway here as he encounters these people is basically that it, it's increasingly bleak that once you're kind of in the gangster life, you never really escape. Going clean is not really going clean because the tendrils of this just nasty, grimy criminal underworld are everywhere and you can't trust anyone. <laughs> and so, and certainly that ends up being true for a few people. So one is the Viper. That is Tatsu. I just called him the Viper because I didn't want to get the Tetsu Tatsu thing mixed up. So the, the Viper, again, is the assassin from the other gang who's chasing down our main character. And he like ends up killing himself rather than continuing to fail at his terrible job of chasing down Tetsu. And it's kind of like this, why do you have loyalty for these impossible violent missions that the Yakuza forces you to do? And and then another one is, so like this whole movie, it's really played up Tetsu's loyalty to Karata. And Karata seems to be loyal back, but it's almost more in like a mentor type relationship. Like there doesn't seem to be the same level of warmth there, but certainly some warmth. But like late in the movie, he gets in a conversation with some of the other mob bosses and they're like, we'll resolve this, but you need to do a few things. You need to let us kill Tetsu and you need to let us have Tetsu's girlfriend. And Karada like thinks about it for about half a millisecond. He's like, okay, yeah, that works. Yeah, there's no scenes of deliberation. It, it's, it's 10 seconds between I'll never betray him and okay, I'll betray him. I think that has an important thematic reasoning, for sure. Yeah, that I I will talk about that. Uh, certainly, I wanted to talk about that later. And then the movie ends with basically Tetsu just being like, all right, I've had enough of this. And he goes, he has this one final encounter of orgiastic violence where he basically kills or assists in the killing of every single character that we've encountered. Or at least, that's not true. I think probably a couple of the people he met on the road survive. The Tokyo-based folk. Exactly. Including Karata, his former mentor slash boss. And he does not kill his girlfriend, Chiharu. (laughs) But then as soon as he doesn't kill her, she's like, oh, we can be together now. He's like, no, I'm a Tokyo drifter. And he leaves. And that's the end of the movie. I, I love the last line of the film, a drifter doesn't need a woman. I, I think I'm going to use that line as a breakup line the next time I have a girlfriend. <laughs> Sorry, baby. A drifter doesn't need a woman. And then just uh, leave. That's pretty good. What it reminded me of is in Pee-wee's Big Adventure, the girl that's kind of chasing him around, he says, you don't want to get mixed up with me, Dottie. I'm a loner. A rebel. <laughs> Which, of course, is is very funny hearing that yeah. come out of uh, Paul Rubens. So that, that last action scene you mentioned, there's so much to talk about there with the, the sort of the setting, the action itself, the um, sort of cinematography and the way the lighting, especially in the colors. 
Uh, I could do like an hour segment on that alone. But I will say it is a brisk like six minute sequence compared to the endless saloon sequence that comes before it. It is a very, very short sequence. And in fact, the film itself is quite short. I believe it's only an hour and 15 or 20 minutes. So it's uh, it's not even to the sort of standard 90 minute mark. Yeah, my my count said 83 minutes, which would put it at an hour 23, but definitely on the, the short side. And I, I love me a good sub-90 picture. I'm, I'm always in on a sub-90 picture. It is a brisk film for sure. Yeah, which just adds to the, the chaos of the, the story. But I think now maybe let's talk about those two scenes because I think those are two of the more interesting scenes and probably two of the best scenes, I would say. So the first one is the, the saloon scene. So basically, I don't even remember. I think it's his an old ally of Kurata yeah. who owns the saloon. It's I guess it's like a picture of what would happen maybe if Kurata actually went straight and Tetsu was there. So there there's three locations primarily. One is Tokyo, which is the beginning and end of the film. And then he goes north to a prefecture called, I believe, uh, Yamagata, which is in the north, the snowy land. Then he goes far to the south to Kyushu to, I believe, Nagasaki. Um, and uh, that's where the saloon is. And the guy who he stays with is a dude named Umetani, who is an old ally of Kurata's, who I believe is mentioned actually early on in the film, but you don't see mm. him until the end. And he owns this saloon uh, and is currently working for him as well as Shooting Star, the other drifter. I guess he's also a Tokyo drifter because he originally worked for Otsuka. But yeah, so it is sort of the third stage. The third location we get is the southern area with this saloon and the um, American servicemen. Yeah, I wanted to remark that at this saloon, there's definitely some Westerners. We've got white people. We've got black people. It was surprising to suddenly see that in the middle of japan here and amusingly the only english spoken is uh completely incomprehensible there's one english line from one of the servicemen and it is clear he is not a native english speaker (laughs) because the way he says it is just so it's either it was just adr and it was a japanese guy who said it or this guy just does not speak english because i couldn't even understand it and i've seen the film four or five times well, also, there's this part during the bar fight where it was, like, extra cartoony, where there's, like, this line of sailors or whatever whatever job these Westerners hold. Oh, yeah, the, uh, like, Navy men. And the Japanese girls who are there, like, sing some chant. One, two, one, two. That they're making the sailors, like, march along, and then they hit them over the head with pots or something, like a Looney Tunes. And the chant that they say, I think, was in English. But, again, yeah, hard to hard to understand. Yeah, 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 you're right. There's a few more English lines there. The, this saloon fight, to me, was just... It was one of the masterpiece moments of this film. In just its escalating comic chaos just virtuoso level it starts as like a normal kind of strip club vibe what do you call an old school strip club burlesque yeah where there's this woman who's like taking off garments and she's got like the kind of feathery covery things that she uses as to like add some sensuality as she removes her garments and there's kind of 
hooting and hollering. And then it just, it goes one step at a time. So the hooting and hollering turns into drunken groping, which turns into people booing that guy, which turns into people smacking that guy, which turns into punches being thrown, which turns into everybody punching each other, which turns into just like chandeliers falling and people smashing things over their head. The balcony gets knocked down at one point. A pillar collapses. And it, it's it's just amazing. It, it's hilarious. And I, I think the moment it reached peak surreality for me is you've seen like maybe 10 people get things smashed over their heads in part of the fight. And someone takes a celery stalk, just this huge over-the-top celery stalk, and hits it over someone else's head. And that was just a, a chef's kiss moment for me right there. It's like, what sort of insane world have we gone into? But I'm loving this moment right now. And this It's funny because uh, this was certainly intentional because I believe this is a direct parody of like a Western film, uh, like a saloon fight, but nobody really dies here. Compared to the fighting in the North where there's these dudes stabbing each other with swords and everybody's being shot, or the fighting in Tokyo where... It's just brutal, like, violence where people are dying. This is, like, it, it's violent, but it's just like a brawl. There's people just punching each other. Nobody dies. People are being thrown through windows and falling off of balconies, but it's all played for laughs. It's a very interesting contrast. Brian, what did you think of this saloon fight? I liked it quite a bit. Yeah, there's a ton going on. When the balcony collapses... I admired them for pulling out the hydraulics or whatever they needed to do to have that suddenly happen. And I also loved how everybody gets thrown out at the same time. Like, there's just a giant dog pile of people in front of the bar at the end. One other moment that made me laugh during this saloon fight is this was like a very James Bondian moment to me, at least the cornier James Bond movies, where... So I, it was not clear to me how Tetsu got involved in this. Like at first he was observing from a distance and then all of a sudden he's in the fight, whatever. But it, like he ends up basically in the arms of the, the burlesque dancer. And she says something like, Oh, Tetsu, you're better than all the other men here. And then he basically flings her away and continues fighting. But that was a good bit of parody for me of like the super macho man who, everyone falls for, you know, the James Bond character who can seduce any woman. Yeah, a couple of comments about that. First of all, her Japanese is terrible. Uh, I will say that. It's it's hardly intelligible. It's subtitled there, but it's very bad. Um, and the second thing is, uh, I love how she punches one of the guys who comes after Tetsu right after that. I thought that was very funny, because one of the servicemen comes up and she just slugs him in the face to protect Tetsu. <laughs> and, and so that's one of the just great bravura get everybody in this ballet of violence scenes the second one of those is the the finale scene where tetsu comes back to tokyo ready to kill everyone who's wronged him there and this is pretty astonishing i'll start with something that struck me and then i'll let will because i know you had some thoughts on this one speak mm -hmm. For me, the, the most striking thing, I, I love it when movies do something to like make their endings feel almost apocalyptic and like out of the world that we've known or like the downfall of the world that we've known. And the way that this was shot where it's like a placeless void 
of like these wills, these spirits battling each other. It's, it's so strange. It's like a black void background and it just adds to the operatic drama of it all. I thought that was amazing. A good way to stage all of, all of this action. Well, what are some of the things you liked about this this climactic fight? Okay, so for me, I I want to give you a breakdown of this is basically in my mind everything Seijin Suzuki does well in one sort of five or six minute sequence. So we open on the scene and it is all black in there and it's pitch dark and we see the only shining beacons of lights are what's her name uh, Chiharu and the piano. They're the only things we can really see. Everything else is black, um, and in fact. Kurata, who's been wearing this sort of brown suit the entire time, has switched to a black suit for the final confrontation. The scene is literally black and white, and that Tetsu comes into this room with a white uh, suit, and all of the villains are wearing black suits. And it's pitch black when the scene starts, and when Tetsu steps in, all of a sudden, the light comes up, and it's half lit. It's like, oh, okay, so sort of this beacon of morality, this beacon of light uh, has entered the room. And um, there's uh, there's so much to say about the action. We have the sort of comically thin pillars that are used as uh, blocking the shots. We have Tetsu holding the piano over this guy's hand as he writhes in agony, and it's clear that Tetsu is putting zero force on the piano. We have the gun hitting the piano in uh, a great moment. And also, this happens several times throughout the scene, but Tetsu sort of has this superpower of people just, like, believing him. Multiple times he says, I have a gun on you, or something like that, and people just are like, they trust him because they fear him, I guess. And he never has a gun when he shows up. He just takes somebody else's gun. And there's in this final scene, he does this thing where he slides his gun out into the middle as if he's surrendering. And then he just runs up to the gun again and picks it up and starts shooting around. And nobody, like, everybody just lets him do this. And he does this other thing where he tosses the gun in the air to pretend that he's done. And then he runs up, catches it, and shoots another guy. There's these moments of action <laughs> that are just completely incoherent. And I love it. Yeah, that was a crazy move. He tosses it up in the air and is able to run to the other side of the room and catch it and not get shot by the guy who's got his gun aimed at him while he does this. And then with the, with the final bullet, the building the fully lights up and everything goes straight to white as he finally killed all of the bad guys. I love the color. I, I just adore it. Have you guys seen the movie Black Dynamite? Ah, uh, yes, I have. It's a uh, a good film. I saw a little of the TV show that briefly followed it on Adult Swim. It's a, it's a parody of black exploitation films, correct? Right, which is not entirely irrelevant because one of the major stylistic influences on the, the black exploitation films of the 70s were the Asian kind of kung fu yakuza movies in one of those two genres in the 60s and earlier. Anyways, the reason I bring it up is because one of the great gags from that movie I thought of when he did that gun move that you're talking about. So in Black Dynamite, he enters a room and he's fighting people. And all of a sudden, I think it's a knife. I could be wrong. I think it's a knife flies in from the window. And he says, I threw that shit before I came in the room, (laughs) which like making fun of the ridiculous physics of basically superheroes being able to do these ridiculous maneuvers that don't exactly make spatial or temporal sense. Yeah. Um, so with that, the film ends. And do we want to go into um, some of the sort of specific, I, I, I guess there's categories we could talk about, right? The music, the 
sort of the outfitting set design and colors and uh, the plot itself and stuff like that. But I guess before that, I know you guys have this signature um, segment of Is It Good? And I want to, knowing what I said at the beginning about Suzuki Seijun, how he was fired from the Nikatsu Film Company because his films did not make sense. I believe the uh, the CEO of the company was literally quoted as saying, yeah, this studio releases films that make sense, and he does not make those when he was fired. <laughs> so now with that in mind, I want to ask you the question, not is it good, but does it make sense? And I uh, would like us to use the same eight-point scale from, uh, what is it, What's one not good to uh, toward a good, so in this case, no sense, I guess, or not sense to toward a sense. Let's just plug in the word sense for good. Okay, sounds good. So we have, at a one out of eight, we have a very not sense. Very not sense. I guess. That would be a very not good for us. Uh-huh. And then it goes up through eight, our our masterpiece rating, tour day sense. Okay. And so, at a, like for example, at a four out of five, we have a sense-ish. At a six out of eight, we have a very sense. So, yeah, sure. For those... <laughs> Those of us who have never listened to an episode might be a little bit confused what we're talking about. That's all right. But you're going to... This one's for the longtime fans. <laughs> you're going to hit us with some, does it make sense? So does it make sense? That's my question. And I guess, uh, who should go first? So are we just doing the movie in whole? Just just the plot of the movie. So did you understand what was happening? Does it make sense? The story of movie. Yes. Okay. Well... I'll just throw a sense rating on this. I thought it made quite a bit more sense than some of the things that happened in House Sue, but maybe that's a low bar. I'm going to give this a 3 out of 8, a not-not sense. Um, I kept up better than I thought I would at times. Dan's recap informed me that I did catch more of it than I thought I had when, once I reached the end of the movie. So that's where I'm at. Certainly there's some strangeness from one moment to the next. You're not always guaranteed to have a comprehensive continuity. But I was not scratching my head as much as I was during, say, Dead on Arrival. What about you guys? Dan, you want to go first or well, should I? No, why don't you go next? Okay, so I was originally in the same boat as you with three, which is what, not, not sense? Um, however, last night, uh, in order to sort of uh, understand the context of this film a bit better, I watched uh, Suzuki's next movie, uh, which is called Branded to Kill. And let's just say that that movie makes this film look like a tour de sense, uh, because <laughs> really nothing makes sense in that movie. And uh, it has sort of given me a lot more context for what truly a confusing film can be. And so with that in mind, I uh, am going to bump this up to a four, which is, I believe, sense-ish, right? That's right. Yeah, good job. And I will say, um, Dan's recap did a very good job. I, because I've seen this film five or six times, I did notice a couple of small errors, but I do not blame Dan at all for not uh, recognizing the continuity of the movie. I, I make a lot of mistakes in these podcasts. I use the wrong words or the wrong names, basically two or three times an episode uh -huh. so how about i give my rating and then if you want to make any corrections you can right of course that, excuse me if you want to make any corrections that that'll be a chance for you to do so so it's interesting that you've this is at least the second time you've brought up that you you found stranded to kill much harder to follow than this because i was on the opposite end of that 
Stranded to Kill has leaps in logic and time, but I didn't have to follow a recap to know what was going on with that one. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to interject for just a second here to say that immediately after Dan said he gets names wrong, he referred to this film as Stranded to Kill twice. Uh Will, what is the title? What is the title, Will? Branded to Kill. Branded, Branded to Kill. To kill. <laughs> yeah. See, there you go. Uh yeah, Branded to Kill. I found that one a little bit I actually found that easier to follow in its broad strokes than this one although that one the plot is a little bit more I don't know impressionistic in the the broad emotional strokes that it covers but um I found this one the first time I watched it again I watched it twice to try and make some sense of it just there were characters and things happening and I knew who the main character was but I didn't always know any of who the other characters were or why I would care about what they thought. I'm giving this a two out of eight on the sense rating. <laughs> this is a not sense movie for me. What the hell was going on with all of these characters betraying each other? And why did I care about it? I got to admit it removed my emotional attachment from Tetsu and his journey a little bit, given how much I did not understand what he was doing and why for much of the film. So that's where I landed on it. So we got a two, three, and four, which is not a ringing endorsement of the coherence of this film. <laughs> right, but I think we will see later. This perhaps does not implicate on the enjoyment of the film very much for me, um, the fact that it does not make much sense. And with that said, I will point out a couple of flaws you had in your recap, namely that the club with the dancing, the manhole is actually owned by Otsuka, not by Kurata, which is... It was so it was the villain's home base, not the main character's home base. That was, I believe, the biggest mistake. But really, um, most of the inconsistency does not lie in the plot, but rather the construction of the plot. The cuts between things are very quick. There's no sense of time. It will cut from a meeting to another meeting, and somehow instantly Tetsu will be at a different place. Characters seem to warp around, and uh, there's really the coherence sort of flees with the editing and the uh, sort of pace of the film more than anything else. That's a good call out on me for missing that, who the boss of the purple dance club was because an important scene visually happens there. And it's another one of my favorite scenes of the movie where it's a blend of comic and danger, but basically Tetsu like I don't know what it is, but he there's like these weird combination of trap doors and like sliding things. And he falls into this trap at the dance I'm... club and then he like has to escape. And it was pretty wild. I'm really glad you brought up this trap door scene because once he's down there, he like falls on the floor. But then we see the dance club from underneath because it has like a one way mirror floor. Which I could totally see uh, Japanese stereotypes incoming, but I think this criminal gang could make a killing renting out the space underneath this see-through dance floor. <laughs> yeah, so the, I just going into this dance club, I want to talk about a little bit of the sort of uh, symbolism of it. And we notice there's this sort of very dancing, jazzy music. First of all, the dance club is called the Manhole. I don't know if you got, either of you guys got that, but it's called the manhole, which is obviously a uh, opening into a sewer, which I think is a good um, 
bit of symbolism there. And we have this very bright, vibrant dancing. And then as soon as they step into the sort of back office, the uh, wall opens up into this sort of uh, where the Yakuza have their base. And the music cuts off, and it's immediately very dark. And then later in the scene where, where, he, said, where he falls through this trapdoor, which is a hilarious scene because they close the door and then open it, and then he just runs off a ledge and falls down and looks like he died. But um, anyway... There's literally a corpse under the floorboards of this dancing, and it really, uh, I loved the sort of, um, sense of, like, the sort of gilded veneer of, uh, pop and culture and fun, and right underneath that lies the sort of darker underbelly, which is, in this case, a literal corpse under the floorboards of this dance club. I mean, I think that's really important thematically for this film. I really noticed it the second time through that I was watching that a big point of this film, like, in everything that happens is just how pervasive the nastiness of the crime and the people pulling the strings are illicit and betraying each other and criminals and doing bad things, but how like the populace doesn't seem to care. So on the, you have the, the business and the criminal are completely interchangeable. Like the corporate, is equivalent with evil in this point. And also that it's kind of dehumanizing and also like the mass has turned a blind eye to it. And it's just this really kind of stark kind of juxtaposition of this, this violence that's also driving this kind of mass brainless entertainment. I don't know. It's like, it's, it's really subversive and, and pretty interesting. And it reminded me a lot of some of the things we talked about when we watched Godzilla, where Godzilla, they there's like this horrid fear of westernization and just this encroachment of brainlessness and this loss of Japanese traditional identity of like good values, good Eastern values of being loyal to the people who take care of you and they in turn are loyal to you and how that just kind of rots from the inside. That's very much here in the sense that, as we talked about, Tetsu's boss doesn't even hesitate from basically flipping him as a business asset when when it's on the line. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on yeah. under the hood of this film, for sure. Yeah, I want to say this is a pretty clear indictment of sort of the standards of Yakuza films and calls into question a lot of the um, themes that are often present, themes of things like honor and sort of respecting uh, the elders and sort of the myth of the good Yakuza because we even have Tetsu just going around killing people and uh, in the end when you have the final moment where he uh, is you know wearing the white suit it's basically when he swears off the Yakuza life and decides to become uh, the titular Tokyo Drifter. So yeah as I said before this film came out at the peak of Yakuza popularity sorry sorry Yakuza film popularity in uh, Japan and so um Certainly, there's a lot to a lot to say about this. A sort of um, he's poking fun or making fun of or uh, deconstructing, you might say, the uh, tropes and expectations of a yakuza film. Yeah, I have a couple of other comparisons to bring in. One that just to, to lay the groundwork for this one. When I saw this comparison, I was like, I've made it as a cinephile. I'm bringing in a 1915 French serial into this Japanese 1966 gangster movie <laughs> as a comparison point. You know I've hit it as a snob when I'm, when I'm bringing something in like that. But this French serial, again, from, from 1915 called Less Vampires, that was a really early crime story 
in cinema history that basically it does a lot of similar things where it shows things that like seem one thing on the surface, but via the use of like elaborate physical sets that show that in a very visual sense, the thing that we take for granted as kind of the norm, the popular image of good and happy is like really undercut by all this backroom nastiness with things like trapdoors and hidden compartments and spying peepholes and stuff. It uses that exact same mechanism in Less Vampires. That one's kind of more about the, the sneakiness of it, but that was one. And another one is, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the 1967 gangster movie, Point Blank. So it came out right around the same time. I, I'm going to make sure I have that year right. Let me just look it up. Not to be confused with Point Break. Right. Yeah, I was like, isn't that the one with Keanu Reeves? No, yeah, so Point Blank <laughs> was a 1967 gangster movie starring Lee Marvin. And it's got a lot of shared things here where basically it's a slightly different angle. So instead of like a loyal guy who gets betrayed, he has his own reasons for revenge. But it has the same kind of the gangsters are essentially a corporation element to it. And they're like controlling the business forces that are behind what we see. And it basically equates this over commercialization with all of the toxic criminal nastiness in a similar way. So that if you kind of enjoyed that thematic element that there's an American film, you can go watch that. It's plot is a little bit more coherent than this one, perhaps, but hits on some of the same things. Okay. So I don't want to get too uh, meandering and confusing with this. So let's, can we go back to the beginning of the film? I just want to, there's a few things I want to talk about. Definitely. Specifically, the beginning of the film, there's, first of all, it's an amazing scene. Why is it black and white? That's my first question. The other thing is, the way the discussion happens, which is split in the middle of the train, is sort of something we see several times in the film, sort of left side, right side talking. And um, it felt kind of iconic to me, this sort of split in the train where Tetch is on one side and a member of a opposing gang is on the other. But you mentioned earlier that Quentin Tarantino sort of directly references this by having the first scene in Kill Bill Volume 1 be black and white, and then following the opening credits, the movie switches to color, which is exactly what happens in this scene. I, I was I was amazed by that opening, because it's not just black and white, but it's like the super saturated black and white. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was beautifully shot. I really liked it. And I didn't know what was happening, and I didn't really follow any connection but it set the tone that like style mattered a lot more than the story i guess i was curious because the little blurb on amazon prime video said this colorful movie <laughs> yada da 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 and i was like what it's in black and white what what where is the color going to be but then shortly we got it you're right, Dan. The cinematography and the sort of set pieces in this opening scene immediately are amazing. We get the shot, like, under a train. We get the shot of a orange toy gun when everything else around it is black and white. And also, with regards to the super-saturated color scheme, immediately we notice Tetsu is wearing the white suit and the guys who are kicking his ass are wearing uh, dark suits, which uh, immediately highlights the sort of wardrobe choices of the film. Right. Now, the black and white with a flash of red or i guess it was orangish red in this case mm -hmm. made me think of schindler's list which does the same thing yes with the girl in the red dress yeah in very very different purposes but i definitely thought of that the other thing is the actually 
there is, I believe Oltska is the one who says it, but he spoils the entire film, rather the plot of the film. There's a line where he says, Tetsu will get knocked down three times and then rise up like a hurricane, which is uh, exactly what happens. He gets knocked down in Tokyo once when he has to leave, gets knocked down in the north once, and then he gets knocked down again in the south when he gets betrayed, and he rises up like a hurricane and kills everybody in Tokyo again. Oh, man. I'm glad you mentioned the moment when they call him a hurricane. Now, I thought that was interesting because any fun fact book that you read is going to tell you that in the Eastern Hemisphere, they call hurricanes typhoons, but apparently that may be erroneous. <laughs> I know they, they certainly call them uh, typhoons. I can Because literally typhoon is the Japanese word for a uh, hurricane. But the, the other thing I was going to say is there were a lot of the translation was pretty good. I speak some Japanese, and there were a few moments when I was like, uh, this is an okay translation. And I really liked the effort they put into making it sound gangstery. Like, they later said, yeah, we need to rub him out when they meant to kill him. Uh, <laughs> which is uh, quite amusing for me. That's pretty funny. One thing I read about this movie, so you talked a little bit about how the kind of the background for this is Suzuki basically would constantly butt heads with the producers and he was supposed to make, you know, kind of your typical trashy B movies, but he would kind of go and do his own arty thing. And I can't remember where I read this, but I read this somewhere. Part of his technique to avoid the producers knowing what he was doing on each film is he wouldn't make paper storyboards because that could be used by the producers to basically figure out what he was doing. So he did it all in his head. He didn't draw out any of his shots. And to me, that is just mind-blowing because this movie does not have any of what I would expect from a film with no visual pre-planning where you just kind of have this naturalism, just kind of handheld cam look. Mm -hmm. This is all like pre-designed shots that apparently he would just show up on set and be like, okay, put the camera here, uh, tilt it up here, make sure you see these two beams in set. And it'll look kind of cool. And it, it, like, it was basically set up like a comic book in the movie. It's just so visually interesting. And the fact that he was able to do that without any explicit pre-planning on how the visuals would look is just totally mind-blowing and astonishing to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the, the composition of the shots is phenomenal. And with that, I want to talk about a couple of my favorite set pieces in the film, particularly Yoshi's office, which is the debt collector's office, which is the one that has like the ancient art. There's a few things that happen in the first part. When we're in Kurata's office, we get the shot of them through these sort of railing poles, and it looks like they are in jail as they're talking about the debt. And then again, when they're in Yoshi's office, they're shot through a chain link fence as Tetsu is leaning on it, and they're talking about the debt again. And I have to wonder if it was intentional repeatedly when they talk about these obligations and debt it's shot through these fences and walls to make it look like they are imprisoned it actually happens again in the north so i want to say it is a standard that i don't know if he was trying to do it or if it was just something he liked uh but it's almost like they were imprisoned by these obligations there the ancient art is interesting this is maybe the first scene that we see in color one of the gangsters the the meeting room has like ancient Greek or Roman style art on the walls. Yeah, I believe this was the financial broker's office, which is why does the financial broker have uh, sort of these murals on his wall? 
And yeah, I mean, just that it's not like ancient Japanese. It's not like the crashing wave or, or whatever. It's not some woodcut mm-hmm. of a squid. It's this like hoplite warrior in a mosaic. And we also get the first time in that scene where we see Yoshi's assistant, what's her name, Mutsuko or whatever, the girl with the magazine who is spends most of her time laughing loudly. Isn't she one of the ones that has a pretty violent death early on? Yeah, so what happens is in the confrontation in Yoshi's office with Kurata and Otsuka, before, right before Tetsu becomes a drifter, Kurata, who's Tetsu's boss, pulls out the gun and tries to shoot at one of Otsuka's men and misses and kills the girl and she falls down dead. And when she gets shot, or when she dies, there's the scene of the white background going up halfway to red and another example of the color, uh, sort of the gradient being kind of iconic in my mind. Yeah, Brian, did this make you think at all of Suspiria with the colors? A little bit, yeah. Anytime that they're in a room, there's like some big dominant color. And in this movie, it was more purple. In Suspiria, almost everything was red. Here in Tokyo Drifter, we get a couple different colors. I feel like there's like a green room, like a lime green room. Uh, And there might be a big white room. They mentioned the black room. But the the place we are most often inside is this like crazy purple. Right, yeah. So I think it's almost like characters seem to have this color. Because whenever we see Tetsu's girlfriend, what's her name? Chiharu or whatever. uh, She is always in yellow. And whenever she's brought up, it's always yellow there. And obviously Tetsu has this sort of white and baby blue aesthetic. And then purple in the manhole club. And then in the south, I believe, it's the green location. So yeah, it's very sort of a primary color. Like, it's sort of highlighted in one color often in the different locations. I also like that they juxtapose these striking man-made visuals with striking natural ones. Because at one point, characters get on a train, and then suddenly they're out in, like, the snowy fields. And so I guess there the dominant color is white. But it's like suddenly, you know, we've been in these very manufactured spaces and now suddenly we're outside in the real deal, snow-swept fields. Yeah, maybe my favorite uh, sort of um, scene and set is when, uh, my favorite shot is when Tetsu is hiding under the bridge and Tatsu is running across the top of the bridge. I just love that shot and the shadow is sort of superimposed over half of it. And there's also some of the things that are obviously very natural, like the train with the billowing smoke coming out of it that are just very aesthetic to look at because of the contrast off the snow and things like that. Yeah, the snow stuff is all cool. Something about snow always makes for a really cool shot. I think part of it is white space is just, I guess, in the human psychology, very appealing to look at. But just the the contrast of having things happen against this bright white was really cool. There was a couple of really cool ones in the snow. I think that was when it had this really weird train thing where he had this thing in his head that he's like i i don't know what the 10 meters was was it 10 meters that he, that's his accurate range his he can accurate always range? hit them within 10 meters i guess it, it's not explained but it's kind of at one point he says my range is 10 meters and then from it only ha- comes up once or twice but yeah and in this half comprehensible scene there's like an oncoming train and he's also like following is it i don't even know who it is at this point he's following someone is it tatsu I think it's Tatsu, because he shoots he shoots Tatsu in the hand at that point. Gotcha. And that was really cool with this train coming at him, and then he was chasing after this other guy. And then that was an example of it basically just ending 
Basically, as soon as you would expect to see what the aftermath of the thing was, it just jumped to something else. Oh, yeah. That was really weird because what he does, it's like the two guys who are fighting are facing each other on a train track and Tetsu is closer to the train and it's bearing down on him. But he, like, in the last moment gets off the shot he needs to hit the other dude. But then, of course, the train is on him and... Yeah, but it doesn't... Does he get Does he get run over? <laughs> He, like, drops down and lies flat on the train tracks, and I guess, presumably, the train goes over him? But we we don't get any follow-through showing him surviving, so... It's, it's not explained at all. Other than he shows up in later scenes, so I guess this plan worked, but it that doesn't seem safe. I'd say not. don't try this at home. Agreed. So, there's a few points of incoherence I want to talk about, especially in the snow scene. The Obviously, the most jarring one was when him and Shooting Star are in... He, so Tetsu has been shot, he's shirtless, his arm is bleeding, and he is, uh, his bullet just got removed by Shooting Star, and they're standing in his room, and then he's like, I'll stay until you're well. And then there's this white cut, and Tetsu's gone, and, and then the Shooting Star's just like, oh, he's gone. And then it cuts to Tetsu walking away. It... it <laughs> That is perhaps was the most jarring of the moments of uh, incoherence. I loved it. Uh, to me, I talked a little bit before about how I it's kind of unclear at points whether this is supposed to be funny or serious, but the more you just take it as comedy, the funnier it gets, in my opinion. If you just accept that this is funny, it becomes funnier. Sure. I had two more points I wanted to hit before we discuss the follow-up film. And then gave this movie a rating. Right. So one element I wanted to hit was, and, and then if you sorry, if you guys have any other ones, we can of course throw mm-hmm, this into. Mm-hmm. So one is this scene that I know I think I've called like three or four scenes already masterpiece scenes. This was another one for me. It's like right as he decides he's going to be a drifter, and he he escapes, and the the viper Tatsu is following him. And he goes to this junkyard and we get this like one to two minute long scene of a car being destroyed in the junkyard. And I don't know why, but this was really resonant for me. It was like you could just see, I don't know, the modernism of like this horrible world that he's living in, just like burning up and destroying and just a very potent omen of the violence and doom and gloom but also like how trapped he was to come i thought that was both visually beautiful but also like deepened the movie for me i really love that that little cutaway thing this scene was the highlight of the movie for me it felt like it would be right at home in breaking bad or something you know we get this really striking cinematography from unusual angles because this car is being fed into, like, a car crematorium. It's like this huge blast furnace that the car is getting crushed up and shoved into. But we actually get shots that are, like, from inside the fire. And, like Dan said, everything just stops while we watch this scene of the car getting destroyed. Just a really cool montage as it's having all these processes done to it that reduce it down to nothing. Yeah, I quite like this scene as well 
Although I struggle a little bit, perhaps, compared to you two, to sort of uh, find the symbolism or the meaning of the scene. It To me, it was almost felt like horrifying. Like, it's very almost visceral watching this uh, car get destroyed because you have these shots in the furnace and then the car burning and then getting crushed. And it's it, weird, it was weirdly unsettling for me, considering it's just, you know, the shot of a destruction of a car. So, um... Like I said, I'm not sure I could point out the uh, exact symbolism of that particular scene, but I agree in that it was certainly very striking, and you got very in the moment, very inside the destruction of the car that, uh, to me, was a little bit unsettling. Uh, well, I think part of what you're saying there is why I liked it so much, is that we're in the midst of this kind of craziness with all these gangsters and business deals and stuff, and we just pause and watch just this as you said, visceral, just brutal destruction of a car, which is a symbol in itself in many ways, but just this large physical item just getting brutalized. I don't know. It's just a very round and interesting symbol, regardless of whether you just want to view it as like a, a thing that just happens and kind of unsettles you for two minutes or something that you want to read as having deeper meaning and and kind of parallels with the, the plot and the themes of the, the movie and the story. Just that feeling that it gives you to me is part of what makes it so great. So I don't know. I, I'm with you on that. It certainly is one of the more memorable uh, scenes of the movie, even if uh, the meaning can be a little bit harder to parse. Right. So what was the next thing you wanted to talk about? So we need to just this wouldn't be a complete podcast of talking about Tokyo Drifter without talking about the theme song. Tokyo Drifter. So we hear it in the opening and then we hear Tetsu singing it and whistling it throughout the film. And just each time we hear it, it's like more in the reality fabric of the film. So like sometimes early on when he's singing it, he could it could just be in his head. You know, it could be the equivalent of a soliloquy where it's just a conversation between the actor and the audience. But then it becomes very clear that this is diegetic within the movie. And we talked a lot about the concept of diegesis when we watched the high school musical movies of all movies. Yeah, that was the last episode I watched before uh, coming onto this podcast. So I, 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 I thought it was fitting that you kept on. You, you, In fact, you said the word diegetic so much that you had a brief moratorium on the word because you uh, did not like hearing it out of your mouth anymore. Exactly. And I just, I love this. I thought this was a great use of music and really creative and fun to see him increasingly use this as like a way to psych out enemies and remind them that he's the hero of the story by singing his own theme song as they approach him or as he approaches them. I thought that was pretty awesome. So I strongly agree. I love this. And it I in my mind, it's as he increasingly embraces this mantle of the Tokyo Drifter, it becomes more central to his identity. And I love the way the sort of uh, the sort of bumbling other Yakuza people react to it. In, in the North, one guy's like, how dare he sing right now? And then when Tatsu thinks he's finally killed him, he whistles from the ground, coming back from the dead to just uh, make it apparent that he has not been overtaken. It's uh, brilliant to me. Do you remember that in Haosu... There was a similar melody that was just omnipresent. Oh, the cat played it on the piano. That's right. It got to the point that, and yeah, the cat plays it on the piano. Then like severed fingers play it on the piano. 
and it just kind of crept into the world. That's great. I didn't make that connection, but you're absolutely right. That's amazing. Also, just to throw one more reference in there, one of my favorite things, in as much as it relates to Japanese media, was a campaign that Sega made to advertise the Sega Saturn. And it featured a mascot character named Segata Sanshiro. And Segata Sanshiro is like a ninja guy who lives in the mountains. And he comes down into the town to beat people up who do anything other than play the Sega Saturn. (laughs) And like Tetsu, he is this isolated wanderer. But the theme song... For Sega Tassanchiro is great. I'm definitely going to drop it in whatever multimedia component accompanies this episode. But I feel like there's like a three-note run, and that's not much to go on, but that was important in both the Sega Tassanchiro theme and the Tokyo Drifter theme. I don't know. I gotta I gotta play them next to each other, but I think there's some some shared melody in that later film, and um, I think the Sega Ta commercials owe a lot to the vintage like 60s and 70s Japanese films. Cool. So we've kind of talked about it, but I want to talk a little bit more about the comedy of this film because we're focusing on the style a lot, but I also find this film extremely funny. And there are several moments throughout the film that uh, when I watched it, so I watched this film, of course, in college, but when I first watched it again, they had me, I almost had to pause because I was laughing so hard. And there's a few moments I want to call out, and the first of which is when um, we get first introduced to the female lead, Chiharu. When Otsuka shows up to the bar, and the piano player stands up and says, we're closed, and then Otsuka just slaps him across the face and knocks him to the ground. That, it was, I, it was so funny for me the first time I watched it, because it, it kind of comes out of nowhere. He just gets the shit slapped out of him. I found that to be extremely funny. And then we already mentioned the trap moment where um, Tetsu falls, just runs into a trap. Also, extremely funny. And even the detective just bumbling, chasing Tetsu down and then immediately losing him. Also, very funny. There's, I, I, I think we've kind of, to me at least, we've kind of undersold how humorous uh, much of this movie is. Yeah, I was not sure how to interpret the humor of the movie. It definitely made me laugh some of the times. Sorry, it definitely made me laugh several times. But... I was on the fence about whether it was trying to make me laugh or whether it was like a just bizarre intensity of the Yakuza film. Mm -hmm. And I guess your take here is that it's by exaggerating that to comedic levels, it's kind of poking fun at it. Right. I think I said before, and I perhaps embarrassing again, I think this movie is funnier and funnier the more you accept the funny moments as either intentional or just funny. Like you don't worry whether they're intentional. So I, when I let the things be funny, they got funnier to me. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess, um, I think it bears worth, or it bears asking whether you guys are familiar, how familiar you are with like Japanese media in general. Like, do you, there's, to me, there's a, a lot of stuff in this movie that is, I would consider extremely Japanese. Like the way Tetsu treats the Chiharu and uh, other things, to me, is very, very Japanese uh, and if you're not familiar with that, it might be confusing for you. That's a good question and something that I wanted to talk a little bit about. Like our our relative levels of having been steeped in Japanese culture. 
I would say I'm I'm not very far along. I've watched a couple anime, you know, a couple of the Godzilla movies. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I performed Yata at band camp. <laughs> uh, of course, so did I. And I believe Dan did as well. Oh, yeah. But, um... <laughs> That's about it, though, for me. I remember in one episode of The Goods, you met, you referenced, I believe it was the Now You See Me, you referenced Death Note. So I didn't know if you were a uh, Japanese culture aficionado or not. I've watched that one like three or four times. I know it's a normie one to be your favorite, but I do quite enjoy Death Note. It's like Breaking Bad or Dexter, but with magic. Yeah, I, I do not look down on people for, uh, it, despite being very immersed in Japanese culture myself, I certainly will not decry you for uh, enjoying something that is popular. What about you, Dan? How familiar are you with Japanese media in general? Not very. Let's just leave it at that. If we say anything post-college, it's basically none prior to this podcast when, again, this is the fourth Japanese movie that we've watched. Or I guess third, right? Because we said... House and Godzilla, right? And Godzilla, yeah. So this is the third Japanese movie that I've watched. I've also read a lot about film recently. And Japanese film is probably only behind American film in terms of the potency and the number of masterpieces and the influence. Right, yeah. It's I think the big three are French, Japanese, and American, if I understand it correctly. But not too much, I gotta say. So... I've enjoyed what I've enc- I've encountered, but not all that much. I-, I still got a lot out of this movie, despite knowing that it was very Japanese, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think I'll have to throw a Bollywood movie in at some point. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's another... Uh, I certainly have zero familiar with Bollywood movies. Besides, I've, I think I watched... In, in high school, we were made to watch a movie called Three Idiots, which was quite good. And of course, I've seen Slumdog Millionaire, which is the Hollywood take on... Uh, Bollywood so my wife back in either high school or college had this musical that she and her mom were pretty into called Bride and Prejudice (laughs) and it has this signature musical number called No Life Without Wife and I've watched that on YouTube several times No Life Without Wife maybe I'll, I'll send that one over to you guys that's very funny all right, so we've been talking for a while. Do we want to move into rating this movie, or do we talk about Branded to Kill first, or what's the procedure here? So one final thing before we move on about Tokyo Drifter that I think is worth mentioning is that this film was shot and edited in less than a month. It was 28 days it was made, which I guess perhaps is pretty standard for B-movies. Uh, before seeing this and reading a little bit about it, I didn't know the full context of what a B-movie was where it was literally A movies were the main movie in a double feature, and a B movie was often made as the back half of a double feature, and so had a lower budget and sort of less constraints from the film studio. But this movie was written, shot, and edited, and released in under a month. So I think that's worth noting, considering the comparison to modern films, which seem to take years and years to make, and in some senses don't match the style and quality of uh, Tokyo Drifter. Will, you should go listen to our coverage of the roger corman movie called what's it called brian a bucket of blood i was thinking that as well because they that was one that was shot at least i think in five days although i i can't say for certain how quickly they turned around and edited it but Mm -hmm. it was quick and cheap and roger corman was a master of that yeah some of the american b movies have crazy stories 
So we talked about one in that episode, which is basically... So Roger Corman, who was a producer and director, he booked a building for shooting for seven days, and he finished shooting the movie that became A Bucket of Blood in five days. And so naturally he thought, I have two days left. I can shoot a movie in two days. He shot the original Little Shop of Horrors in the two days that he had left, and... That has ultimately gone on to become the better-known film, although it owes a lot of that to the fact that it had subsequent adaptations and also was the first mm-hmm. appearance of Jack Nicholson. Yeah, I, I just think it's interesting to think about how these movies, like, it's just a baffling amount of work for, you know, such a short amount of time. But yeah, that, here's another thing I'll bring in from that book about the 60s that I've been reading, is that... It's hard for us to think about now because of how ingrained we are in like having the technology and the media always at our fingertips. But prior to the mid 50s, the average American, their their only encounter with moving pictures and media was going to the movie theater. And it wouldn't be you would just, oh, instead of watching TV today, I'll go to watch a two hour movie. It would be like, well, today's today's a movie day. And you would go to the theater and you would get a four-hour ticket. And it would include an A movie, a B movie, and at least two shorts and a news segment. And it was like this whole package of media that you would go and consume at the theater. And Fascinating. Yeah. The concept of a B movie got kind of muddied after TVs became prevalent and... People were no longer interested in spending their whole days at a theater, and they just wanted to see the best of the best entertainment. It's it's pretty interesting how the ways that movies were made in the studio system evolved as the American, well, really, as the global audience, um, the way that they could kind of encounter these movies and encounter moving pictures changed, and the demand for a specific quality, they wouldn't always just take the thing that was there. They they wanted something that challenged them in different ways. And in some ways, the B-movies have aged better than the A-movies for the reason that you said, Will, which is that the B-movies, people could just make interesting things, whatever they could at the budget. They didn't have to worry about if it was going to draw the crowds. They just had to have something that was there. And so you had people like Roger Corman who were just obsessed with movie making itself and like doing something interesting with it, even at a low budget. And even with like weird tastes, I don't know, they would they would do fun stuff with it. So that's why you have people like Brian who are out there purveying movies of genre, movies of certain cheesiness, the B movies out there. And this movie, I think, revels in its cheesiness to some extent. Certainly. So now do we want to, with that said, talking about movies that revel in... Uh themselves and their own identity do we want to move into branded to kill sure so i managed to watch this one brian did you get to watch this one i didn't get around to this one yet it's it's a repeat of the more american graffiti debacle just ran out of time so i watched this movie yesterday starting at 1 30 a.m and i was extremely tired that perhaps contributes to this feeling but let's to give a one sentence sort of summary of 
Tokyo Drifter, I would say it is a dreamlike sequence of stylish set pieces and bombastic action scenes, whereas Branded to Kill is like a sex-crazed fever dream or drug trip. There's a lot more nudity, a lot more like perversion and stuff like that that goes on in that film. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I love this movie. I liked it even more than I liked Tokyo Drifter. The way that it kind of melded the sexual, I don't know if perversion is the right word, like the sexual deviance of the film blends with the violence of the film in a very aesthetically compelling way, certainly striking way. It's all black and white, a very intense and beautiful black and white. And this was apparently like shot black and white because like they, they kept making lower and lower budgets and the budget was so low he couldn't afford to do it on color film. Right. Yeah, that was their attempt to drive him to making more uh, understandable movies was to lower his budget. And it ended up having the opposite effect as he goes from like a relatively normal movies to Tokyo Drifter, which is, you know, obviously incoherent, super stylish to Branded to Kill, which is just this. It's like I said, it feels like a fever dream at many points. The gist of it is apparently there's like this global official assassin rank. I think it's just Japan, but yeah. And like everybody recognizes it. Who is the number five killer right now? Who is the number four killer right now? And there's a very mysterious, who is the number one killer? And the main character has a wife and the wife gets in an affair with one of the main bad gangsters. Also, this main guy encounters this really bizarre woman named Misako. And she's like this death obsessed woman. And he like eventually ends up accepting a hit contract from her. And she's like mixed up in all this stuff, too. And to me, this felt more like directly a noir homage. You don't really know what side anyone is on. But the thing is, they don't know who number one is. Who's number one on the list? Some people think he doesn't actually exist. He's a myth to get everyone to try to do their best. And then various people claim that they're number one or they know who number one is. And I really like the ending. I'm going to spoil it. The last kill that he does is Misako, and then he says, I am number one. And it's not clear whether he was number one all along or whether he is now proclaiming himself number one, but it's kind of a dramatic finale, and it's like shot really weirdly. It's like a boxing ring mm-hmm. where he, he finds himself in, like a gym. Yeah. And of course, we all love Robbie Rotten's declaration that we are number one. Yeah, we are number one. <laughs> okay, so in this movie, there's a few scenes I want to highlight as being phenomenal. The introduction of, what was her name, Misako, I love. When his car breaks down and the, the convertible drives by and it's pouring rain, but the hood is down and he jumps into it and you get the shot of her just drenched by the rain for some reason in this convertible with the hood down and the sort of pouring rain becomes a motif for her. That, I, uh, I thought it was very striking and I love quite a bit. Yeah, she's like the femme fatale, but she's like the weird Adams Family version of a femme fatale. She has no emotion ever expressed. No, she smiles like two times maybe, but yeah. It's weirdly macabre, but also sexual. And our main character, Hanada, he's like entranced by her. And she gives this movie an emotional core for me. I don't know. I thought it was fascinating. You're right. It's got a lot more nudity and sexuality to it. That could be a little bit off-putting. Yeah, I was surprised compared to there's almost zero sexuality about Tokyo Drifter. And then immediately Branded to Kill comes out within a year. And for, for example, the 
Hanada's wife, Mommy, she was not played by an actress because they could not get an actress to play somebody who is played always nude and foolish. It was the quote in the Wikipedia article, I believe, or in the uh, fact I read. And instead, it was played by a burlesque dancer who, it was her only appearance in a film. Oh, wow. She did a great job. She was fantastic, I thought. That one moment when she's explaining to him and her, like, expression twists. Yeah. She was she was really good. Uh, and in fact, her acting was one of the highlights of the film for me. This movie goes even darker on the black comedy element. And one funny thing that keeps recurring is... <laughs> The main character can only be aroused when he smells rice boiling. Yeah, he has a fetish for cooking rice. And so there's a bunch of times where he'll encounter an attractive female and he'll say, Do you have any rice that you can start cooking now? <laughs> get me <laughs> some you... rice. He demands he demands them get him some rice. There's other like such bizarre things, like when the, the, the number one killer or the guy who's like hunting him just peace himself. Do you remember that in the yes. movie in, in the apartment? It's it's so strange. But for me, I don't know. Maybe coherent isn't the right word, but like I was on its wavelength more. I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. Like I I really love this movie. I would put this in the a seven out of eight for me. I was just swept away with the beauty of it. Everything that was going on with its weird, intense noir, the assassin ranking, the like sexual frenzy of it. I was in on it. I love this movie. And it doesn't really have any connection to Tokyo Drifter. I'm not sure why we needed to discuss it here. But it was it was a great, wild, mini, bizarre masterpiece, I would say. The reason I wanted to discuss it is because it was such a quick follow-up and has sort of contextually such a relation in that um, Tokyo Drifter was deemed incomprehensible. And so they gave him a shoestring budget to make Branded to Kill, which was deemed too incomprehensible and... Uh, he was fired as a result, which <laughs> resulted in this large lawsuit, and he was blacklisted from the film industry for 10 years after the release of this movie. And he actually went on to make, I don't know if either of you know, know anything about it, but Lupin the Third, which is a pretty famous anime, was pretty inspired by Tokyo Drifter, and he huh. directed one of the movies. Oh, wow. It's a very, very famous anime. I've heard the title, but that's definitely interesting. Pretty famous. As for my rating for Branded to Kill, I would probably give it somewhere between a five and a six i would say a high five or a low six depending on how i'm feeling at that moment perhaps i liked it and there was a lot i loved about it the butterflies and the weird the weirdness of it the indulgence of it and um this the incomprehensibility of it i thought was almost a good thing because it definitely delves into the sort of psychosexual mingling of violence and uh sexuality but i think it is a little bit of a harder sell for a general audience just because it is harder to confront in a lot of ways. It's very, very uh, striking. I can see the controversy about it. One thing I'll throw out there is the golden standard for movie rankings in my book is TSPDT, They Shoot Pictures, Don't They? Which mm -hmm. is an amalgamation of a whole bunch of different movie ranking lists into one master list that goes on into the thousands mostly from critics fairly snooty type of list but right anyways it has branded to kill at number 893 on the top 1000 uh-huh and tokyo drifter at number 2182 wow so i was surprised neither of them were higher than that but i'm not alone in in, in uh seeing it as 
as its own kind of uh, work of art on its own. I believe it's considered to be generally Suzuki's magnum opus, but I will say I understand. I didn't understand it until I watched it, but I understand now why we did not watch it in my college class compared to Tokyo Drifter, because like I said, a lot of nudity, the portrayal of women, a lot more questionable. It is arguable that Hanada rapes uh, Misako at one point, and there's like a lot of darkness about that. So I can understand why we did not uh, watch it in my film class compared to Tokyo Drifter. Yeah, and you brought up the butterflies. The butterflies is this great recurring image throughout the film. And Masako, she's the femme fatale woman who's probably the most memorable character here. Her thing is she poisons people. And so there's always this lingering question of whether characters are poisoned and hallucinating. And at one point, it's pretty clear they are hallucinating. And we see like these very artificial butterflies overtaking the screen in a very house-like effect, I would say. Mm-hmm. And there's also the butterfly is what prevents him from killing the thing that really sets off the chain of events where he... Right. Because uh, la- a butterfly lands on his gun and covers the scope. And there's also all of the dead butterflies in her office or her apartment or whatever. There's just, it's, it, it's rich with symbolism. And it's, it's at points hard to reckon with. And it's kind of unsettling because it's so many like dead bugs everywhere. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks for letting me talk a little bit about that movie. And I'm glad that you brought it to us, Will, because that was a good one. Are we ready to answer the very important question? Is Tokyo Drifter 1966 good? We'll let Brian go first. Brian, is it good? All right. So a couple factors went into this for me. It's not quite as weird as House. I mean, that is in a whole world of its own. This is more grounded in reality. There's not a million crazy green screen effects. But it was still a fairly confusing film. But the effectiveness isn't drawn all from just the events of the plot. There is some really cool cinematography and... The way the music is done is very interesting. Where I landed for this film is a high five. So it's good, verging almost into very good for me. I had a positive experience watching it. I was captivated by the visuals. And I think that's where I'm at. So I'd say a a little higher for me than House just because of how incomprehensible that one was i i liked house but it was hard to recommend to just a random passerby on the street because of how how potentially alienating the weirdness was uh there's less of that here in tokyo drifter what about you guys i'm not far from you brian although my reasoning is a little different because in fact you did a lot of comparison points to house which i gave an eight out of eight masterpiece rating and i am not going to give tokyo drifter an eight out of eight masterpiece rating i'm going to give it a six out of eight very good because it is about as visually interesting as a movie can be without having me care whatsoever what happens to any of its characters i was not emotionally invested at all just cool stuff was happening but given that i gave it a two out of eight on our fun exercise beforehand doesn't make sense i was just not invested in what was happening so it's an exercise in cool and as an exercise in cool it it does everything it's got these amazing compositions 
It's got colors that just pop off the screen. These awesome action scenes. It's got this kind of fun, loopy, elliptical editing that it's all about the style. But again, I can't sign on to a movie where I felt like whether this character died or didn't, I just, I didn't care one way or the other. That's why it doesn't rise above a six out of eight, which I will still point out is a pretty high rating. A very good. I think it's, I think this is a, uh, a movie that any film fan should watch, but should be aware that it's, for me, it's all about the cool factor, the style factor. That's where I landed on it. What about you, Will? So I and was kind of when I came into this, uh, when I des- decided when I sent this film to you and I decided how to uh, that this would be the one we were going to watch. I didn't know what I would rate it because I remembered liking it from uh, college. And I remembered that oftentimes people will ask me about like what Japanese films I recommend. This is usually one of the first of my lips just because I have a sort of a good memory of enjoying it in college. And I noticed as I was watching it, I watched it two, maybe two and a half times in preparation for this, and my estimation of this movie went up each time I watched it, partially because I understood what was going on more, partially because I appreciated small details in the uh, cinematography, in the uh, costume design, in the scoring, and in the construction, and partially because I started not to care about the things I sort of disliked from this movie. The incomprehensibility became a backseat to me to the experience. And I really started to enjoy the almost theatrical nature of it. And when I say that, I mean it almost feels like, at points, a stage play because the sets are so bare and the uh, the way the, the simple colors and things like that. And with that said, um, after enjoying it so much, uh, talking about it, after enjoying watching it two or three times, um, I am going to give it... I was originally going to give it a seven, but I've decided to bump that up to an eight, to a torte good. I consider this perhaps to be my favorite Japanese film. It is a stylish bombastic sort of greasy hamburger of a movie where, of course, yeah, it's not good for your health, maybe, in some sense. Of course, um, there's some things to uh, that are not particularly good, but when I'm taking a bite of that hamburger, it's very easy for me to forget those flaws. The score is great, and not just the singing and the whistling, but the actual instrumental score is uh, notably good as well. I believe Suzuki Seijin said it best. I read an interview from him, and he said... In my films, time and place are nonsense. So uh, I agree with him, and uh, there's, I love this film, and I love it more every time I watch it, perhaps because I understand it more. But there's so much to like about it that I will happily recommend it to anyone with almost no caveats, because I think there's something anybody can enjoy in this movie. Well, cheers to that. Love us a good 8 out of 8. What was the last 8 out of 8 prior to this, Brian? Titanic got one. Yeah. I gave Titanic an 8 out of 8. But, Will, thanks for bringing a movie that meant a lot to you, or at least meant a lot to you by the time you brought it to our airwaves. I think I just like Japanese movies. I gotta go watch some more of them. I have a handful of recommendations. I was looking on the list of your... that They shoot pictures, don't they? And I found several of the movies we watched uh, in my coursework over the years. But several that uh, I think are worth watching, even not in on that list that I could uh, recommend to you. And if you want anime movie recommendations, I have many of those as well. But yeah, I was uh, happy to come and talk to you guys. Uh, I quite enjoyed this. Um, the Not just the recording of the podcast, before, but it's been a while since I have looked more in depth at a movie since I took a uh, couple of film courses in college. So um, 
yeah, if you guys ever want uh, me to come back, feel free to let me know, because this is a lot of fun for me. Uh, by the way, what time is it there? Currently, it is 12.18 p.m., so we started recording around 10 a.m. for me. So it was, uh, it's Sunday morning, so not too early. <laughs> okay, so not so bad. Unfortunately, the time difference means we can only really record on weekends. Right. Well, as we speak now, it's about 11.15 on a Saturday night here on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Yes, older folk like my brother are probably getting drowsy. Yeah, I gotta go to bed because my daughter's gonna wake up in about five and a half hours and, and uh, want to do something, so... I believe Dan is only getting older. Is that only me? Well, I guess we're we're all of us getting older, but you are approaching an important calendar date. That's right. I see what you're doing now. By the time this goes up, it will be uh, your birthday, correct? Yep, you just ruined the punchline, Will. So thank you for that. I did, didn't I? You can you can cut it out. We can we we can re-record this later. <laughs> Go back to the beginning. We're we're starting it over. <laughs> From scratch. <laughs> I ruined the punchline. <laughs> um, you loyal listeners of the goods, I know there there are some of you out there. You know that one thing that I've talked up is that one thing I've learned from our co-host Brian is an appreciation for birthdays. Before I knew Brian, my thought on birthdays was, what's the big deal? It's just a day, you know? But Brian reminded me that a birthday is a day when we get to celebrate you. How many days out there are people thinking of, hey, today's a day we're going to celebrate you. It's just your birthday. That's the only day they're going to be thinking that. So let's embrace it. Let's go with it. Let's celebrate you on your birthday. And we had an outstanding episode on Brian's birthday back in January. We watched the documentary about the Rock of Fire explosion which was the precursor to the Chuck E. Cheese animatronics. I thought that was a great episode. It was a fun discussion. I've spent the time since then thinking about what do I want the episode for my birthday to be about? Because we started our podcast about nine months ago. That means it's my first birthday since we started the podcast. So I haven't encountered this problem yet. But now, what are we going to do when it's, when it's my birthday? And my conclusion is, I, I want my birthday to be a moment when we look at movies that were formative to me in some way. And so what I have done, listeners, is I have rented a theater. It's a, it's a private reservation for a theater. It's going to be me. Brian's going to be there. Will can't come because he's in Japan. We're going to watch a movie that was very formative to me. And this was the movie that right around when I started college got me really into animation as a medium. But then I, I spent a few years where animated movies were basically my favorite movies, and I, I tried to catch up with whatever animated movies I could. But this was the one that kicked it off, and it's one that I haven't seen in a long time. It's one I've never seen on a big screen. I'm excited to see on a big screen with Brian and with others. And then Brian and I are going to discuss it afterwards, and that is... Brian, do you know what it is? Is it the first How to Train Your Dragon? That would be an excellent pick because that is one of the handful of movies that is up there. Okay. Is it um, is it Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? <laughs> That's another very good example. Um, this predates those. Okay. Um, Can I guess? Go, go ahead, Will. I was going to guess The Iron Giant. There you go. That's the one. Yeah. Using my brotherly memories. 
Good call. It's the 1999 film, The Iron Giant, directed by Brad Bird. And I am excited to see this. Brian, when was the last time you watched this movie? It's been a while. I saw it. I think I rented it shortly after it came out. Watched it back then. I did watch it at one point since college when I saw that it has really gotten a lot of hype more recently. It's It was kind of a sleeper hit. Like, it came out and it took people a while to catch on to how good it is. But but even since then, it's been a while, like like five or six years. So I'm definitely looking forward to this. It's, it seems like a good pick. I really like many of Brad Bird's films. It draws a lot on Cold War pop influences. Definitely. Yeah, we got a lot to talk about with this movie. And some of it is personal and some of it is just ways this movie is amazing and influential. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm sad I'm going to miss it. Brian, I'll see you next week. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I have considered renting out a theater, but I'm glad somebody is finally belling the cat and doing it. And I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Will, for joining us from the other side of the world. Yeah, I had a blast. Thank you guys for having me. Maybe we'll have you join again sometime. Yeah, maybe next time uh, we can watch a movie that is a little bit more understandable. <laughs> Perhaps. Although, I like I like the Japanese insanity. Brian, you had a great line when we talked about House. You said, they're the only country that's ever been nuked, so it's okay for them to be a little bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> And that's how we end the episode. (laughs) Something along those lines. Anyways, Will, can you give us one anecdote of living in Japan? A Japanecdote, if you will. (laughs) Um, One anecdote of living in Japan. Let me think. There's a few I could give. Would you like a very, very Japanese anecdote or sort of just an absurd story or what? Whatever comes to the heart. Let me think of the, the mindset of a Tokyo drifter. So many years ago, and in fact, two years ago, uh, I was going to visit a buddy of mine uh, for New Year's. I was visiting him. So I took the train north, and this was after a night of partying because it was right before New Year's. So I had not slept, and I was taking an early train. So I get on the train, and I it's so crowded that I can only get a standing room only ticket. This is a Shinkansen, so a bullet train ticket going north. I get a standing room only ticket, and I'm half asleep because I have not slept in about 30 hours. So I get there, and I'm going to a place far in the north. And at one point, halfway through my trip, the train splits in two, where one goes north to Hokkaido, and the other goes west to my destination, Akita. And I'm sure you can see where this is going, but I (laughs) accidentally rode the wrong train uh, and went to the northern island of Hokkaido instead of the destination of where I was or where I wanted to go, and ended up seven hours uh, late to an appointment with my friend. And then the next night, the next night, we uh, joined a traditional Japanese, or traditional for a very small town in Japan called Oga Peninsula in Akita Prefecture. And this tradition is called Namahage. And we went from, from house to house, scaring children with uh, men dressed as monsters as they paid small donation to, like, the local government. It was a lot of fun, and um, I got to drink with a lot of older Japanese men and rub a bald man's head, which was uh, a good experience, uh, and apparently gave me good luck for the year, although I am not sure of the veracity of such a tradition. When you get drunk, do you put your business tie around your head? Uh, I'm not quite that type of rowdy salary man, but I have seen it before. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's good. Well, thanks for sharing, Will. Indeed, it was it was good to have you here. Lots of love from the continental U.S. Sayonara. Thank you.